Welcome to Orthopod, a podcast about the people of orthopedics and their stories. We understand that we all play many roles in our careers and lives, and it is these very stories that ultimately inform our successes and failures. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Orthopod. My name is Mo Bindari. I'm Editor-in-Chief of OrthoEvidence, and um, from time to time, I get the opportunity to uh, talk about some what I consider to be generally uh, important milestone projects that happen. Uh, today is just one of those moments. I'm here with Professor Matt Costa, a longtime colleague and friend, and we'll get into that uh, shortly, but he is from uh, the Oxford um, group, the Oxford Trauma and Emergency Medicine Group, um, and has been, I guess, a trailblazer in large clinical trials. And so we have a lots, lots of things to chat about, but today we're here about uh, a recent New England Journal of Medicine paper. I believe it came out February 10th of this year. Uh, under the title of Cemented or Uncemented Hemiarthroplasty for Intracapsular Hip Fractures. Welcome, Matt, and uh, delighted to have you share the results and some of your take on this particular paper with us today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Well, thank you for inviting me along. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this series, regular <laughs> listener, so it's a pleasure to be, to be here. Um, um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about... Um, the key messages from this study and maybe and uh, you know and, and a bit about the history like you know how did it come to be and uh, what did you find sure uh, so i mean it's um, over 10 years ago now that the uh, the cochrane group um, uh, colleague of mine martin parker wrote some um, of the evidence about cement uh, bone cement uh, for use in hemiarthroplasty for, for hip fracture versus uncemented implants and at the time of that review uh, most of the the evidence came from the very first generation of uncemented implants. The sort of things that you and I will just about remember, uh, Austin Moore's and uncemented Thompson's, where it was basically a, a bit of metal that you, you wedged into the top of femur and, and hope for the best. And, and the Cochrane review showed very clearly that um, the cemented implants, the bone cement used as a grout in the, to fix the implant to the femur, uh, did better, so less pain and, and better outcomes generally. And so in, in many countries, including the UK, most of us started using bone cement as the default for all of the patients having a hip hemiarthroplasty for a hip fracture. Um, but of late, there's been a move, um, a lot in North America, but not a lot of places around the world, and increasingly in the UK as well, to start using the modern uncemented implants, the sort of thing that have been used for many years successfully for treating patients with arthritis for, for hip replacements, but using them for hemiarthroplasty for patients with hip fraction. And given that trend seemed to be accelerating, we thought we'd better do a study comparing modern uncemented implants with those fixed with, with bone cement. Um, so as usual with these projects, we, we reviewed the literature and there were two or three uh, trials beforehand, um, but, but smaller studies, one or 200 patients, that so we didn't think really nailed the question. So uh, following your usual advice, we went large and, and just did a bigger study to uh, a randomized trial to compare these two implants. So that's the that's the background to the to the project. And of course, five years later, you get a result. I guess. So, so let, let me ask you this. I know, I know, I suspect some some of our listeners and viewers already know the answer. They've read the paper, but you know, probably many haven't yet gotten to it. So this will be news to them, which is great. But you build a story just like we did. We've done it multiple times where, you know, prior smaller studies using different implants, for example, you know, come up with a very large treatment effects favoring something. When you went into this trial, were you believing that, you know, we're probably going to see uh, and confirm the hypothesis that even against modern day um, uncemented cemented, it's probably still going to be the hypothesis that it's better. Or did you go in with the mindset of truly it could turn out that there's no difference between the two? 
So um, it's a good question. So I always, um, I like to think I always have sort of equipoise about these issues. So we'd only yeah. do a trial if I really didn't, yeah. was uncertain about the outcome. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, I like every other orthopedic trauma surgeon, I have an opinion about this. And I'm, you know, a, a strongly held opinion, a personal yeah. opinion. Right, right. Uh, and so I thought um, that we'd probably end up with a trial that showed that there was little difference in terms of the outcomes, but probably a big cost difference was my suggestion. But what I've learned over doing this sort of job for quite a while is that normally when I guess, I guess wrong. You think it'd be 50-50, but it's not in my hands. It, I, I'm very sorry to guess right. So I've almost given up suggesting really, but I didn't think we'd show huge differences in quality of life. Um, I got it, I got it. And you got it, got it. And, and that totally makes sense to me too. Like, you know, when, when you do something much more rigorous, um, everything, everything kind of always seems to, seems to be in my mind. It just seems to get closer and closer to the null. But the thing that was interesting too is like we've, we've sold prior to selling, meaning the idea of why we need this study. It's very difficult, I've found, and maybe you have this idea before we get to the results. I'm keeping people in suspense here, as you can see here, Matt. But, uh, you know, about this, in, this issue of equipoise at an individual level, I'm, I must say I've gone into most of the studies I've done with the general belief that I think something is better and have an hypothesis. But the truth is when we look at our whole trial group and, you know, um, or, or what's happening around the world, there's generally equipoise because there are strong ardent advocates, let's say in North America for uncemented, for an example, or popularity, and maybe strong ardent advocates for cemented approaches in Europe. So globally, there really isn't an answer, even though individuals feel they have the answer. And I wonder if that has been more of a pervasive around all the programs you're doing, including this one. I think that's absolutely right. I, uh, you know, we, in theory, you should always have personal equipoise when you're, you know, enrolling patients into randomized trials. But I'm pretty sure that doesn't exist these days. I mean, <laughs> and certainly not in surgeons. I mean, we all yeah. have a view, and yeah. you kind of yeah. need a view in order to perform your practice day to day. You've got to have faith in what you're doing and and believe on behalf of your patient you're going to get the best outcome. So I've kind of given up on individual equipoise. Really. <laughs> yeah, but I think okay. that's fine because oh, yeah. quite, as you quite rightly say, as a community of surgeons, you know, in in uh, countries all over the world, we don't know, and we actually, yeah. although we've all got our individual opinion, they're, they're usually diametrically opposed, as you, you suggested. Absolutely, so. I know that storyline. Okay, yeah. so so you had uh, you had shown well prior Cochrane reviews had shown that there's a potential, um, and I, if I recall, that benefit was not a minor; it was a fairly significant benefit yeah, yeah. demonstrated. Yeah. You had suggested let, let's do a, a large a clinical trial, multicenter, uh, rigorous as as you always do. Um, thinking that, okay, let's see if we can either prove or disprove this hypothesis. So tell us what you found. So, I mean, the really important thing is that all of the implants used were the modern, the, the most up-to-date generation of, of uncemented implants, as well as the modern cemented ones as well. So it was different from the previous sort of studies. So the, the main finding, which slightly caught me by surprise, we showed a, a small but statistically significant uh, improvement in quality of life for patients with this cemented implant. So that was the, that was the key finding. The primary outcome measure was health-related quality of life as reported by the patients themselves. Uh, and we showed a, a definite improvement at one month, at four months, which was primary endpoints, but a much smaller difference at one year. Um, we can talk about why that is, but obviously a lot of these patients are very frail and the, the mortality rate is around 25%. So you lose power as you go on. Um, so an early benefit in terms of quality of life and then a, a much reduced benefit at, at one year was the, was the headline from this. And were there any other yeah. outcomes of interest yet? Yeah, so the, the key secondary, the outcomes, um, which are all reported in the, in the paper, the clinical ones are, um, was really around periprosthetic fracture because 
if you are taking a, a bone, which is almost by definition of uh, osteoporotic because of the nature of this injury, and you hammer a metal implant into it, the worry is about periprosthetic fracture. And we showed that that was a statistically significant difference. There were more periprosthetic fractures in the uncemented group than the cemented group. Um, that was the key secondary outcome finding. We shown benefits, um, smaller benefits in, in terms of mobility and so on in, in favour of the um, uh, cemented implants as well. But they were the key headlines, really. Lower periprosthetic fracture rate and improved quality of life with the cemented uh, implants. And the thing now, did not... you get to a... Yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, did you get to a mortality signal in that? Like yeah, so we um, so we we did report mortality, and yeah. the intention treating analysis, primary analysis, shows no difference. But I think it was twenty seven percent in the cemented group, and about twenty three sorry in the uh, uncemented group, and about twenty three in the cemented group. On the per patient, on the per protocol, so according to which implant the patient actually had, because there's always a few crossovers in these studies, then actually there is a statistical the significant reduction in mortality in the group having the bone cement which is interesting. What we couldn't do in this study was look at the early mortality. So this sort of bone cement implantation syndrome, that's always a big concern. It was one of the drivers for the trial, really, that worry about people having terrible reactions to, to bone cement. And of course, to, to answer that question, because the event rate's so low, you, you need a, a different type of study, really, in registry work, yeah. which has been done elsewhere in recent papers on that. It's funny because not not funny at all, but it's but it is the reality of what we've been seeing is and that I guess is always the way right like the trial answers the, the, the this trial definitely takes us forward a big step right um, in understanding this problem. And yet some of the, the those who, that are convinced that uh, that it didn't go far enough, you know, we found that with our health trial where we had two year outcomes showing no difference and then suddenly between total hip and hemiarthroplasty, but then you know, the advocates were saying, well, you didn't wait long enough, um, you know, and, and if you wait long enough, we would start seeing the benefit of total up and probably to some degree, there's, there's quite a bit of validity in that. But the mortality issue, I'm sure you're aware as, as many of us are aware of that there are, there've been a number of large database studies that have come out that saying that, you know, you know, the issue with uncemented having increased periprosthetic fractures may in fact itself be with enough patients a drive of you know, uh, potential signals and mortality. So in some way, we might even start looking at the periprosthetic as a surrogate potential for you know, um, real concern. I mean, a signal that you know, in large, large numbers could be. Do you believe that's also the case? Do you believe that if you, um, you know, were, had sufficiently more uh, patients in that you may have in fact seen that signal, uh, the impact of the periprosthetic fracture and mortality? Yeah, I mean, quite possibly. So the, I mean, if you're looking for those rare adverse events, then of course, you know, you, you're looking at randomizing tens of thousands of, of patients. We, we've tried to do that with infection, which is a bit more common than death. And even then we're, we're struggling, even with five, we just finished a 5,000 patient trial and it's still not enough really, if we're absolutely honest. So it, it's huge numbers. So you've really got to go to registry data, which is of course non-randomized, but you, you can do, well, as you've shown many times, you, you can do um, some fairly good analysis based on that with big numbers. And, and the Scandinavians are great at this. And they, they published a paper recently, uh, actually in the Bone and Joint Journal, <clears throat> which I think really is the strongest evidence I've seen yet to say that there is a real effect at one day mortality. There's a slightly higher rate of mortality in the group having bone cement. But actually by seven days, that disappears and the trend at one year is towards lower mortality in the cemented group, as we found in this in this trial data. So 
I think there is a definite effect of bone cement on, on perioperative mortality, as in, but it's really rare. The adverse events are relatively common, around one, one and a half percent, but actually death is very rare. Um, and but that equalizes out by seven days. So within the first week, there's no difference. So that's right. Yeah, yeah. For me, that's strong evidence towards, you know, still saying, yes, there's a real effect here. We need to acknowledge that. But actually, there's still an overall benefit to cementing the hemiarthroplasty was my interpretation of those data. Got it. So has practice then, from your perspective, changed um, at your institution or the participating institutions now? Is it pretty clear or uh, you know, about what needs to be done in, in terms of your message when people say, OK, based on this paper, what is your recommendation? It seems pretty clear from the paper's findings, but just maybe to hear it from you. So, uh, yeah, we, so we're recommending using cemented hemiarthroplasty as the standard of care, really. Um, and the, the other piece of the jigsaw, which is the cost. Um, so we did a full health economic analysis. Um, it's interesting, a lot of the large American journals, uh, you know, New England Journal being top of the pile, um, don't uh, necessarily want to publish the health economic side of things. And there's lots of reasons for that, which we could go into another time. But um, it's really important, particularly you know, in the UK, where, as you know, we've got a national uh, single healthcare provider our national health service and and so containing costs is is pretty important so we did the economic analysis and slight spoiler alert and it's actually cheaper to use the cemented implant as well so if you've got lower complications better quality of life and it's cheaper then that to my mind's a bit of a no-brainer we should be cementing these implants having said that i recognize there's some training issues and and other factors involved but in terms of the future for for people being trained now in orthopedics, we should probably be teaching these cemented techniques, which are not difficult. It's you know it's a relatively straightforward thing to do uh, once you're familiar with the bouncement. That's very very cool. Um, maybe just on a personal note, I, I don't know if you recall Matt uh, the first time you and I actually met, um, but I recall in reflecting on this paper um, that I think it was in 2010 at a combined meeting of the orthopedic associations. I think it was in Glasgow. And I remember being at some small venue where there's like four people and uh, Damien Griffin came in and said, hey, I want you to meet this, you know, this person. I said, yeah, sure. And I was with Emil Shemich at that time. You may or may not remember this, but I, I think remember I think. it now yeah. reflecting back. Yeah. And, you know, at that time, and he made a point out and that stuck with me. He said, you know, this guy's going to do big things in, in, in research, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's kind, of, kind of the way that I, I remember maybe a decade before I had been introduced to somebody else, you know, to a, to a Mark Swinkowski or Paul Trinetta or Emil Shemich, you know, these folks. And I guess, when I look back, I kind of, I was kind of smiling when I saw this paper only because, you know, I saw the paper. I said, Hey, have you heard the New England? I said, Oh yeah, yeah. I looked at it and I saw, I looked at the first author and I went back and I said, Oh, this is awesome. Like, I, I don't know if this is your first, maybe you've had many prior New England's, but you know, the point is, there is yeah, there's something, there is something like a milestone about um, in, in a career. Um, you know, when you get to a point where you have, you know, have research that is, disseminated far beyond the orthopedic world. I think this, this type of research you're doing and the work you're doing has transcended our subspecialty in many ways. And I think there's something, I don't know, I hope you, I hope you take a moment to reflect back on the team, right? It's, it's, you know, right now you and I are talking, but I know there are hundreds of supporting members and collaborators with you that I know you would acknowledge and put you, and I'm sure you put them in front because I just know the type of person you are. But anyways, I, I just wonder, have you taken a pause to kind of reflect on what this means for you? And um, not, not, not so much the paper per se, but the journey to get here. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I remember that meeting very well. And um, I mean, we talked about this before, but um, 
it, we in the UK, we copied what you did in Canada. I mean, unashamedly. Um, so the COTS movement to, to form, to decide what questions the community wanted to answer rather than individuals and then to work together to do that was something we blatantly copied from what you did in, in Canada. And fortunately, our, having a single healthcare system in the, in the UK, single healthcare provider in the UK, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons of that sort of thing. But one thing it does facilitate is, is collaborative research. And, and so we, we set copying what you did from Canada in, in the UK. And to my amazement and still to my genuine delight, my colleagues around the country um, seem to get on board with this. And now we actually went from, you know how it was when, when we first started, you had to go around begging and begging. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly that. Yep. Corruption, whatever worked, it was, you yep. know, that we needed to needed help. Now we have queues of people. Sometimes we can't open all the centres that want to take part, which is just brilliant. It's fantastic. And that changed to, in people's mindsets in the UK and Canada and increasingly other countries around the world as well is, is just the biggest pleasure in my career today to see that transformation. And you're absolutely right. The, the collaborating authors list is very long on that paper, but so important because, you know, you and I sit there and write bits of paper and, and you know, I operated on a handful of the patients, um, but the collaboration involves hundreds of surgeons in, in different centres. And without them, of course, it just doesn't happen. So they're just, they're hugely important. In fact, they're, they're the most important thing about the trial. I know. I should also mention the research nurses who collect the data. That Absolutely. Are probably even more important. So oh. they're unsung heroes, those guys. For sure. And I, and I know that, I know you feel very strongly about, you know, a team effort. It is, it is about the team, you know, um, in some ways we just function as, you know, sort of the spokes people. Uh, among, you know, I'm sure there's lots of spokespeople talking about this trial. I'm sure lots will continue to talk about it. But, you know, from the perspective of, of you know, you uh, very kindly uh, multiple times have said, you know, um, what, what happened in Canada as this collaborative under a national healthcare system, too, that I think in some ways, and also probably our size, right? Our size, it made it quite mandatory that for us to be able to do large trials, we'd have to work together. And in many ways, there's just a collaborative spirit that's developed over decades in Canada. But the thing that I think that differentiates and that makes me feel particularly proud of when I see papers uh, coming up from groups and individuals I've known for many years, isn't so much that, you know, that they've done what we've done, but they've taken what we've done, they've improved upon it, and they're on a pathway to do things that we never did. And when I look at the kind of the work that's happening, some of the work around, you know, platform trials that have come out of Oxford, you know, the idea that we can, you know, and having really a committed group of investigators, uh, finding a partnerships with government that really are, you know, sustainable, you know, for large programs and pushing the envelope, I think are all things that in many ways, when I look at my own career, I wish we would have had those, you know, some of those built in because, you know, it is, it's, it's, there's a fatigue associated with large trials. And I think, when you're the recipient of it, you say, oh, well, they should have done this, you should have done that. But, you know, it's 10 years of your life getting to where you've gotten to for the one particular trial. So it's it's very easy for others to criticize outside, or, or I don't say criticize, but, you know, they give constructive feedback. But unless you've done it and lived it, it's a different world. Yeah, and, you know, that constructive feedback is, is incredibly valuable. I mean, there's not a single study trial I've ever done a probably feel the same, but I wouldn't have changed something about it. Wouldn't have done something differently if I had my time again. I mean, one or two of them, I would never have started if I knew how it was going to end up. So you, you always learn, and, and the criticism is key, because without the criticism, you don't improve for next time. But I think it's really exciting times for the research at the moment. So the white 5 trial was one of the last ones we did uh, using the old framework of 
we, ha we had a, a large observational study of hip fractures in the UK and used that as a sampling framework for trials. But we've just opened the first two randomized comparisons within a, a platform trial now in the UK. So um, I don't want to bore your, your listeners. Uh, too no, no, much. but I think, but I think it's important, Matt, because I think like the reality is, is that what you know the the methodology of how we get information out has been rapidly changed during COVID, and this idea of having a simple platform where you can bring product, you know, treatments in and out quickly, um, and comparisons and out is that's the future. And I think we're going to have to start seeing groups lead that, so we can then model that. Totally, and so the the the, the World Hip Trauma Evaluation is like grand title for for why is the the platform is is one trial. And we're now running uh, just about to open on, you know, fifth and sixth randomized comparisons within. So same multiple comparisons within the same participant group. Uh, and it's just so much more efficient. So, yeah, there's there's lots of learning from Well, there's not much good about this pandemic business, really. But one of one of the things that has changed is that acceleration of the actually it's the governance rather than the ideas. The idea has been around for a while, but the, the, the approvals process and the governance structure yeah. to deliver those multiple randomized uh, comparisons within one trial is, is a massive step forward. I'm really excited about it. It's going to, I think, transform how quickly we can deliver results. So, That's great. I, I can't thank you enough. And, and maybe on my last question to you, um, it's more just a, you know, a, for you to, again, to reflect and, and, and think about it. Um, but when you look now to the future, you know, some of these trials take some time and, and it looks like you're, you're on you're on your pathway again for probably another decade worth of trials before they close out and you'll have results. Where do you think things will be in the future and where do you think you're heading uh, with respect to this program? I know we're talking right now about platform, but platform is just, again, randomized clinical trials as our core source of how we get information. Do you see yourself evolving to something even different uh, as as uh, time goes on and maybe you're already thinking about that yeah so i i, I mean the truth is, so i think these things are important obviously we wouldn't you and i wouldn't spend a lot of our time delivering trials in developed healthcare economies uh, if we didn't think important but with in many some ways we're kind of tinkering around the edges really you know changing the surgery you're probably better off using a simple technique and performing it well and avoiding complications than trying to develop incremental improvements in implant design for hemiarthroplasty for, for this group of patients. I think where the big wins will be are in low middle income countries around the world. And you've done this already. Uh, and we've been we've been experimenting for a few years now trying to create the collaborative relationships to make this happen in other settings. And probably the big wins I would have thought are actually in systems of care and, and pathways of care rather than in implants or bits of surgery. And as a surgeon, it slightly pains me to admit that, but we're probably not the most important person in looking after the older, frailer group of patients with fragility fractures. That there's a whole team, as you you know alluded to quite rightly, is a clinical team you need for that. It's not really about the surgery too much. And, so and that's where I think we'll go. Future. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, the majority of trials we've run have always come narrow and narrow with suggesting that when you're looking at treatment A versus treatment B, generally speaking, if they've been in, if they've been utilized by surgeons around the world, they're generally, when done properly and carefully and safely, more closer uh, than being further apart. Because usually, you know, through practice and thing, you, you kind of figure out this isn't working, I'm switching to something that's working. And you're right, maybe the next innovation in my mind, I think where you and I are aligning on some of these things, I've been independently thinking about it. I do think that some of the big innovations are gonna come in the perioperative range. Now, where it is, you know, how that whole care pathway 
for most problems and hip fractures being particularly important is I think going to be where we'll see some innovations and we'll see, we'll see, we'll see if we're right on this, but I'm starting to see most of the hip fracture world aligning on interdisciplinary collaboration. This trial is a classic example of that, but let's not undermine the importance of this particular, you know, practice changing trial. So a huge, huge congratulations, Matt and the team, um, all of you uh, who have been uh, just representing orthopedics, but ultimately healthcare in the highest possible standard. So on a personal note, grateful to have you on and so excited for this study for you. Oh, very, very kind of you, Matt. It's a pleasure, and uh, I know the team very grateful as well. And uh, I'll say, big, big fan of Ortho Evidence in the podcast, and uh, we'll continue to, to listen in the UK and, and around the world. Awesome. We'll disseminate this widely. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks very much, Matt.